You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. There are winners and losers every time intellectual capital changes hands. But the upside of that process is there are always figures from the past who are ready to be rediscovered and repurposed for a new generation. One of the literary critics who suffered from the post-structuralist revolution in the late 1960s is the Canadian archetypist Northrop Frye, whose magnum opus, 1957's Anatomy of Criticism, is, if my own graduate school experience is a reliable judge, a book that many more people reference than read. Lost in the shuffle, perhaps, is the fact that Fry is also one of the most important writers on the relationship between Christianity and literature, having written two books on the influence of the Bible on English literature and many other essays on similar subjects. My name is Michael Farmer. I'm your host today on Christian Humanist Profiles. Our guest today is Claude Lefoustic, whose latest book, Northrop Fry in American Fiction, is an attempt to rehabilitate Fry, not so much by talking about him as by putting his methods into practice on a series of classic American novels. She is a maître de conférence at the Department of English at the University of Rennes. Uh, thank you for coming on the show, Claude, and I hope I didn't thank mispronounce you. all that French too terribly. That's perfect. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. Sure. Um, my guess is that Fry is not terribly familiar to many of our listeners, so I'd like you to begin, if you don't mind, by telling us who he was, why he's so important to 20th century literary criticism, and how you became interested in him. Well, after hearing your presentation, I would say that I became interested in him precisely for reasons that are not those he's usually known for. Uh, he's usually known for, as you quoted, for his 1957 Anatomy of Criticism, uh, which is a theory of literary genres and literature that made him really uh, famous worldwide. worldwide. He's a holistic thinker. Uh, which means that his theory is all about trying to find patterns, recurring, uh, a kind of recurring logic in literary works, patterns which he variously calls archetypes under the influence of Jung or myths. Uh, so he's generally known for that, uh, and for that reason called uh, a major, major proponent of myth criticism. And for that reason also, as you said, he's deemed obsolete. Now, I did not come to Fry via the anatomy of criticism at all, but via his late work, uh, his study of the Bible and literature, uh, his two Bible books, as he called them, uh, The Great Code, published in 1981, and Words with Power, published in 1990. And the, the reading of these two books really acted for me as a kind of revelation. Uh, I was at the time a student of African-American literature, that's what I wrote my PhD on, and somehow uh, Fry's um, criticism in those two books made new sense uh, in the light of what he wrote in those two books, African-American literature made new sense uh, in the way Fry connected the Bible to Western literature. Somehow, um, I, I understood African-American uh, literature better. Uh, I had uh, realized that uh, I was constantly drawn back to the biblical hypotext, as uh, Gérard Genet would say, the, uh, the, the, uh, the, 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 the logic, the biblical logic behind uh, African-American literature and more globally American literature without wanting to. And reading Fry, I, uh, somehow I, I came to realization that there was uh, this constant dialogue between uh, the Bible and American literature and African-American literature in a way that made really uh, great sense to me. And probably also I think the reason why I was attracted to Fry, which was a uh, 
an initial piece of advice given to me by a, a former teacher, something like 30 years ago, uh, is pr probably because I think the way his critical mind worked uh, must have had some kinship with mine insofar as he, uh, he's a holistic, as I said, thinker. So he thinks in terms of synthesis, coherence, which is very much the way I, I, I tend to uh, function also. Would you say that those two Bible books are dramatically different in approach than Anatomy of Criticism? I read The Great Code uh, a few years ago. Mm. I've never made it all the way through Anatomy of Criticism, I have to admit. <laughs> uh, would, would you say the, the approaches taken are different, or is, is it just that The Great Code and Words with Power are like specific types of approaches that you find in Anatomy of Criticism? Well, it's true that Fry himself said uh, in his Bible books that uh, really they were the continuation of what he had always been trying to do. So uh, in a way, it's no different, but the emphasis uh, is probably more explicitly on the relationship between the Bible and literature than it was in uh, The Anatomy of Criticism. Well, the introduction to your book marks it as part of this larger scholastic and cultural movement called post-secularism, mm. um, which, if I understand it properly, is, is an attempt to find a middle ground between orthodox religious belief on the one hand and secular materialism on the other. What is it about post-secularism that makes it so congenial to what Fry is up to in his critical work? Well, you, as you said, well, post-secularism is all about this middle ground between religious belief and secular materialism. Uh, now, uh, what Fry um, showed um, is that if literature is a secular thing, it's a secular undertaking, it's inhabited by a kind of force, a kind of energy that potentially will uh, can awaken us, can open us up to greater, greater uh, awareness. He calls literature the inescapable guide to higher journeys of consciousness. So, uh, in a way, uh, if I understand him well, uh, literature is a kind of secular undertaking with the potential to open up the reader's consciousness to understandings of a religious or spiritual nature. So we find very much this middle ground that uh, post-secularism is all about in this uh, link uh, between uh, the secular dimension of literature and its religious cum spiritual potential. And I think the, the strange irony about that is it kind of connects him to Jacques Derrida, right? Who, True. Who, who in some ways displaces him in the academy, and yet so much of Derrida's late material is interested in finding True. that same middle ground. True. That's also what I try to develop in the introduction. Uh, there's a, a portion of my introduction where I address that, uh, where I think they are somehow symmetrical. That's also what uh, a colleague of mine, um, a Hungarian sp specialist of uh, a Fry says, Chara taught, that they're like, uh, they, they're a bit like twins, really. Uh, with Fry, who started from experience to go to theory, while I had the feeling uh, that Derrida went the other way. Uh, he started from theory to uh, go towards a kind of theorizing of religious experience. That makes so sense are, to me. Yeah, they're like mirror figures. <laughs> and and from from our distance from both of them now, we can see we can see that you don't have to choose one or the other. As I no, imagine, it felt like no. you did for a while. Mm. No, that's that's. A, I, I don't know how how. Well, I suppose uh, there was a logic in our uh, critical time, intellectual times, that uh, made one uh, more more of a of a 
um, liked uh, uh, figure than the other. Uh, but I'm not. I'm, I'm. I find it a pity in a way that uh, it happened this way because uh, I think Fry. I, I don't know of any other thinker except maybe Ricoeur in a very different way that has this potential to open up uh, uh, theoretical insights into. Uh, what, a, what um, a spiritual experience of, of literature might be, or a spiritual approach to reading. Uh, I've, I've never read that anywhere else, really, apart from maybe, uh, ex except maybe, uh, possibly, in, in Ricoeur's work. Who, as you say, is very, very different than Fry in tone mm -hmm. and approach and everything else. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Totally. Who, who sorry? Uh, Ric I'm, I'm sorry. Ricoeur. Yeah, Ricoeur. Ricoeur. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He, he's coming to to these issues from uh, another stance, but Ricoeur for me has been a, a thinker who has uh, enabled me to think uh, the issue of transgression, for instance. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the, he speaks of the of uh, the, um, the the way that he um, broaches original sin as uh, the, the, a limit that, uh, that that you should not transgress because uh, uh, it, it it brings death but that the other part of the picture is very much that the limit might enable to con construct uh, and not be a, an, um, an impeding limit is something that I, um, that I uh, studied and thought of and meditated upon when I uh, first came to analyze Beloved by Toni Morrison, which is uh, very much about transgression and, and the necessity not to overstep limits. Right, and we'll definitely talk about that here in a few minutes. Um, but first, I want to talk about something you say in your introduction. Um, you say that your your interest in post-secularism springs from your experiences teaching American literature in a very secular French academic environment. Mm -hmm. I, I would love to hear more about those experiences. Um, have you found post-secularism helpful in getting your students to think critically about religion and American literature? I'm afraid it's not a very funny experience, but but rather a frustrating experience I've been through, <laughs> as I wasn't able to, I haven't been able, but I'm starting to be able, thanks to this book, uh, to express my experience of literature as fundamentally a spiritual experience. Uh, it's, it's been very difficult. This is an approach that is not, is simply not taken in uh, the secular environment of, uh, of, of French academia. In fact, I, I always say that I find religion and spirituality are the taboo words in French academia, much more than sexuality. Uh, and once you, you're suspected of some, uh, you, you, you deal in, or you, you, you raise those issues, you're immediately, immediately suspected of some hidden form of fundamentalism or right-wing extremism of some kind. So my experience um, is uh, of approaching literature as a vehicle for spiritual growth. Um, doing so, I have noticed that it sort of sparked fears uh, in, in my colleagues, I must say, pertaining to uh, uh, religion, which I understand as a legacy of this, of a long traumatic history linked to, to the Catholic Church, uh, which is probably, uh, that's my belief, uh, at, the, at, the, at the heart, at the basis of a f uh, this fierce secularism that we have in France. Uh, but this resistance I've encountered not only in my co colleagues, but also in my students. Uh, there's, they, they, they sort of oscillate between a, a kind of indifference once you broach those topics in literature and sometimes uh, hostility, uh, open hostility. 
So I was quite relieved to find uh, really this critical work on post-secularism, which is, uh, seems to have been flourishing uh, for some 10 years, not even that much because it made it possible for me to rely on a concept uh, that, uh, that helped me, that uh, enabled me to introduce the topic of uh, uh, the religious or and spiritual value of literature uh, in a French university, uh, even though, uh, as I said, uh, not always successfully because of the resistance that uh, I meet. It's so interesting that there's so much resistance because so mm. many of the precursors to the post-secular movement have come out of France. It's like, how can, how can a country that produces Ricoeur and late period Derrida be, I know. be that resistant, you know? I know. It's a constant uh, source of amazement for me uh, for many reasons. Um, but I, 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 the, the only thing I can say is my experience is that it's very much, this resistance is very much premised on fears. Once, once you start discussing with people, you realize that for some reason uh, they, they, they reject uh, any possibility that uh, an, an interest in, in, in religion, an intellectual in, interest in spirituality and religion uh, might be synonymous with a kind of uh, uh, entrapment, uh, um, curtailing freedom, intellectual freedom. Uh, something like that, and, and, and existential freedom too. Well, you make a very helpful distinction between religion and spirituality, and th those are two words that are often ill-defined. Mm -hmm. And then you note that Fry has an allegiance to both of them. Uh, mm -hmm. wh what's the difference between religion and spirituality for your purposes, and mm -hmm. what is his allegiance to both of them? Tell us about the way he and you practice literary criticism. Well, religion uh, is a system of thought, related to a specific doctrine or dogma, whereas uh, I understand spirituality to be essentially a, a type of experience, which of course involves the mind, but also the body and uh, what is called in Christian terms the soul. So it's a much more existential concept, and it doesn't have to be necessarily linked to a religion. I think a lot of work has been done in France regarding that. I'm thinking particularly of Frédéric Lenoir's books, uh, where uh, he, he makes this distinction also, but he's not the only one. Uh, as far as Fry is concerned, it has been discovered in his notebooks. Now, these no his notebooks have been uh, opened in the past 10 years since his death, uh, in any case, and, and have uh, uh, really uh, helped to revolutionize, I would say, uh, the way his theories understood, at least for those critics who took time, pains, to get interested in those uh, notebooks rather than dismiss them and, uh, and his theory as obsolete. Anyway, uh, uh, those, of, of those critics who have discovered these notebooks have also discovered uh, that he said that his whole theory was the outcome of a number of epiphanies that took a few seconds in his lifetime, but then gave him food for thought for decades. So uh, his theory appears to be very much premised on experience, uh, and spiritual kinds of uh, spiritual kind of experience, uh, which of course then was fed by his deep uh, religious knowledge. Uh, that's for Fry. Now, as far as I'm concerned, literature has very much played this role for me of an awakening force, 
uh, and my critical stance, even before I read Fry, was to try to make sense of the experience that I felt as a reader. So that's the common point that I see uh, between uh, probably, uh, uh, if I may, <laughs> Fry and myself, is this uh, um, determination to make sense of what is essentially first an experience. So you you would say the, the the spiritual part comes first, and then religion is an attempt to codify it. I would say so. Okay, and and literature ends up being something that goes along with the experience, or or kickstarts the experience. It could. Well, it depends very much on on. The, well, you you would be tempted to think of the parable of Jesus's parable of the of uh, the seed that that depending where it lands, you know, will grow into something or not. But uh, literature, potentially, uh, well, some literary works, but we'll come back to that, uh, have potential of, uh, of awakening a, a spiritual sense in, in a reader that I, I strongly believe because I felt it for myself. But if you're not open to that, if you don't, uh, if you're not ready in a way to, 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 to receive it as such, the, the book will be read differently. It will be read on other levels, but not necessarily uh, awake, uh, well, produce that, that kind of uh, awakening, so to speak. Heidegger has that passage in, uh, I think it's the origin of the work of art, where he talks about the, the Greek temple, he, he, the work of art he's discussing, recentering the world around itself. And, and I, I, I think that's the, the kind of spiritual experience we're talking about here. And I think anybody who's who's read literature seriously has probably had that experience of the world is suddenly a new place because you've you've encountered this work of art true true even though uh, i think often uh, uh it's not couched in those terms it's a matter of probably mental barriers but sometimes i i read or i hear criticism that i feel very much propelled by that awareness but they don't use that those words uh, the the word, the uh, the notion, the, the the whole concept of literature having a spiritual power is not is not seen that way. Even though maybe the criticism will be very relevant and and actually saying that, but not using uh, consciously the the word. Well, and I, I, part of that might be that it's very difficult to discuss that experience in a way that makes it clear to others. Certainly. The, 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 the kind of bloodless criticism is easier sure. to do than the, the spiritual criticism. True, definitely. <laughs> well, another important term for Frey is kerygma, and he gets that from the German theologian Rudolf Bultmann, although I, I think Frey uses it in a rather different sense than Bultmann does. Mm -hmm. What is the kerygmatic mode of language in Frey, and how do you use it to examine mm -hmm. the novels you do in this book? Mm -hmm. Well, what I found really interesting in those Bible books of Fry's, uh, very original, particularly in Words with Power, the second one, is the way that he delineates a number of what he calls verbal modes, which I interpret to be his way of uh, theorizing the various ways in which language can touch consciousness, can affect consciousness. Uh, he sort of delineates um, several, uh, starting from the, the type of, of way in which language may affect consciousness uh, uh, less, is uh, realistic writing, uh, realistic work uh, that um, target only Real, well, present reality only uh, as from a, an external viewpoint. So the, the 
what is being targeted in consciousness is the five senses. And that's what uh, Fry calls the descriptive verbal mode. And then he moves on to a kind of verbal mo mode that involves the mind also, the, uh, the mental uh, understanding of reality, uh, the intellectual uh, understanding and philosophy is very much about that. And he speaks then of the conceptual mode. And then he broaches another verbal mode that encompasses emotions, uh, which, he, which you find uh, in any attempt uh, to use language to convince someone. And that's when he speaks of the rhetorical mode for instance, used in politics. Then he, he moves on to a kind of verbal mode that involves imagination and the sub subconscious, and that's typically, according to Fry, what literature does. They use this imaginative mode. And then he comes to this most inclusive mode, uh, this way, the, the way, uh, as I understand, uh, that language may affect consciousness in, uh, in, at its deepest which uh, Fry calls this deepest level of awareness, or consciousness rather, he, he borrows St. Paul's uh, phrase, soma pneumaticon, to refer to the spiritual body in, uh, in a human being, which is uh, the one that is, makes us receptive to spiritual experience, provided that there are not too many mental bar barriers, as I was saying. So uh, when language has this ability, reaches this ability to affect us, at this deeper level, that's when uh, Fry speaks of a charismatic type of mode, of linguistic mode. Um, in relationship to that charismatic mode of language, he also say, says that it's a type of language where uh, the human being, the subject, ceases to be the agent of language, to become at the service of uh, something he receives. So we are very close here to the idea, of course, of revelation. Uh, now, avowedly, it's a romantic conception of language, very much influenced by Fry's own uh, uh, deep knowledge of Blake. And as far as I'm concerned, I use the notion to try and assess, and assess to what extent the books that I study, which are all canonical texts of American literature, depart or come close to this most powerful uh, mode of language that Fry calls charismatic. Simply uh, the query at the, at the basis of everything I've, I've done was to interrogate the key, this, the, 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 what is, ask the question, what is the key to the power of great literary texts? And I believe very much that this charismatic mode of language is an answer to it. Well, let's take a look at the, the novels themselves. And, and as you said, they're all canonical. I, I think most of them will be familiar to our readers. You begin with uh, Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter. Um, that's a book that's complicated to begin with, but it gets more complicated anytime anybody tries to interpret it, because it seems like it would be easy to interpret, and then, well, you, you know. Um, you, you begin with the story's relationship to myth, and you, you tie it into the very structure of the novel in a very Fryan, Fryan, Fryan? I don't know what the adjectival form of his Frigid. name was. I suppose. Phrygian, yeah, there you go. <laughs> I've read that in any case. <laughs> uh, why is the mythic structure so important for understanding the Scarlet Letter? Well, if you start from Fry's work, myth is anything but a simple uh, concept. Uh, in fact, he, he uses it in, in a number of ways. Uh, there's the, uh, the, the basic uh, uh, literary narrative definition uh, where for, for him myth simply means story, really. Uh, there's also the, the usual level of myth 
uh, where uh, myth is the content more of a, a specific kind of story that tells the, the, the genesis of how a, a society started. So that's more in the... Uh, he also uses that, uh, takes into account this kind of uh, definition, which is more uh, the one we are used to. But what I find very specific in Fry is the way he theorizes myth uh, in, a, in what I would call an esoteric, if not maybe even spiritual sense. In the sense that he says that myth says, uh, this is something that I quoted also in the introduction, uh, that myth is uh, not only content, uh, but it's also a process of reading uh, that takes you from point A to point B. And uh, through what we call a story, and also he has this idea that myth does not so much say this happened long ago in the past as what you are about to be told is what happened long ago. And so his idea that myth in a way eliminates the, the distance between past and present uh, and, and creates a kind of timeless experience. This is what I read as his you could say, spiritual definition of, of myth. Uh, and at the heart of, um, of, of the, uh, the narrative in the Scarlet Letter, um, I find that there is this, um, if you remember in the prologue, there's this moment when the narrator takes the Scarlet Letter, puts it on his breast, and has this, what I would call, charismatic experience, where he, he feels the Scarlet Letter is calling. Uh, and in this instant, past and present are annihilated. Uh, and this is what um, um, sends, is, is the starting point of, of the narration. So in that sense, I read the Scarlet Letter as very much a story impelled by uh, a charismatic experience, an experience of revelation. Uh, so this is very different from uh, saying that it's a story that's uh, allegorical, as it's often read, where that's another uh, dimension that is uh, usually discussed. But I've, I have never read any analysis of the novel um, putting in the foreground this re revelation, this experience of revelation as being as propelling the narrative uh, uh, process. And it's interesting that that revelation takes place not in the novel itself, but in the custom house section. True. So it moves from history, because custom house is presented as something mm. that directly happened, history into myth. Mm -mm -mm. True. Uh, well, I read the custom house very much, you could say, as in a meta-literary way. It's, uh, uh, in a way, uh, this is instrument of the narration. This is how I'm going to deal with it. Uh, we are told, in a way, uh, how 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 to read the the, the, the the coming story, and that's what I found in particularly uh, striking and and strong, really, uh, that it should all start with this experience of uh, um, nearly mystic revelation. You mentioned that allegorical reading that's not uncommon of the uh, of the Scarlet Letter. How does that how does that contrast with the mythic? reading well the allegorical the allegory I'm, and there i'm thinking of ricoeur again has this double level of meaning where you have an, a figurative level and a, well, a literal level sorry in the service of a figurative one uh, you say the story says something um, explicitly but means something else figuratively which is not 
too uh, difficult to uh, decipher. Uh, and Ricoeur says once you've deciphered the allegory, you can uh, uh, drop it as you would uh, uh, an old piece of clo clothing because you got the meaning. Now, for uh, in, in in the case of, of the, uh, this um, mythic. Uh, experience, uh, well, this mythic dimension uh, that I am trying to uh, to read, uh, or that I read via the Scarlet Letter. Um, I don't think the the, uh, the, 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 uh, the the approach is at all the same. Um, with allegory, I think maybe um, I would tend to to see that. The, a reading, an algal reading, is all about deciphering a kind of moral, moral uh, message uh, underneath the story. Uh, whereas by bringing in myth, especially in the spiritual sense that that Fry gives it, I was trying to um, illuminate the way the story uh, somehow tries to annihilate the the distance between the legend, the past, and the the the, the actual current experience of the reader. And it resists interpretation in a way that allegory doesn't. Exactly. Because the whole point of the allegory is to... The, the wonderful thing about the, the Scarlet Letter and uh, Moby Dick, too, mm -hmm. is, 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 is the way they, they present themselves as allegories, and then as soon True. as you try to allegorize them, they slide out of your hands. Like, True. there's that wonderful scene in the Scarlet Letter where Dimsdale goes out and sees the A in the sky, True. and he assumes, it's, oh, you know, it's, it's mm. God punishing me he's, he's mm. he, this is this is a message he's written in the sky to me that i'm an adulterer and then uh it turns out everybody else in town thinks the a is for angel because the governor has died that night True. that True. seems to me to be hawthorne mm. saying okay well you can't you can't make these one-to-one -one correspondences True, and I, uh, that's what I also I try, what I try to, to to show in the book is that that I, I think the Scarlet Letter is very much about the failure of allegorical thinking, uh, or the limits you could say of allegorical thinking, which was uh, very much the way uh, the Puritans uh, saw the world. Oh sure, yeah, <laughs> and 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 your argument in that chapter is is that the the novel is in some sense evidence of this desacralizing tendency in the 19th century and it it separates love from puritan morality and mm -hmm. it separates human existence from transcendence mm -hmm. definitely what what i wonder is if there's still a sense in which we can call the scarlet letter a christian text does does that mythic structure you talk about does it reenchant the novel enough to counterbalance its anti-puritanism I'm not sure it needs to counterbalance it. Uh, what I what I try to to say is that yes, I do think that it's still a very uh, Christian text in so far as what it tells and what it aims at doing is to evoke an experience of sympathy uh, for transgression for the transgressors. Uh, if you think of the main uh, characters, Hester and Arthur who are the central sinners, they have, thanks to their uh, past sin, uh, they have developed this strange preternatural capacity to uh, sympathize with, uh, with others. Hester feels the sin in others' breasts. Arthur Dimsdale is moved to the heights of eloquence uh, by his own inner suffering. So, uh, in a way, uh, the, the narrative is uh, put into practice or uh, via those characters in any case, um, shows, um, fictionalizes the experience of sympathy uh, for, for others. Uh, so, in that sense, I read the, the text as very Christian. 
but maybe not, certainly not, in dogmatic or doctrinal terms, because after all, what the story seems to be advocating is transgression, is sin, as the condition to reach that supra-sensitive kind of compassion. And then the, the reinterpre- reinterpretation of sin itself, when the, when the mm. A stops standing for adultery sure. and starts standing for sure. Abel. Uh, sure. I was just yeah. thinking about Chillingsworth and, and his, his kind of diabolical empathy. Mm-hmm. Like he, he feels that same empathy and uses it to destroy instead of to, to heal. True, true, true. It's the other side of the coin. <laughs> There's always the possibility of choice <laughs> in the way you use your sympathy. <laughs> well, your, your next chapter deals with Henry James's The Europeans, and I'll confess I have not read that novel. Um, how does James's The Europeans continue the process of disenchantment already demonstrated in The Scarlet Letter? Well, first, it's a love story. Uh, and this love story, uh, I, what I find interesting is that it, it's, it sometimes, uh, it, it somehow, sorry, shifts the ground uh, from ethics to aesthetics, that's what I, I try to show. In a way, to put it to put it simply, it makes the god of uh, of Puritans, the, of morality, of uh, transcendence, it makes uh, him irrelevant. Uh, somehow, morality is not the point. Uh, the point is a kind, I would say, of hedonism illustrated by the central characters uh, in, this, in this book that opposes, on the one hand, a, a set of characters who are European, who are a brother and a sister who come from, uh, from Europe, versus a set of characters who are a family, uh, Americans, uh, Puritans. Uh, and in this opposition, there's the opposition between there's a moral opposition between uh, the pseudo-sinners coming from Europe and the pseudo-virtuous characters living in, in, in America. Only the book, of course, shuffles cards in such a way that you don't know who's... Uh, in, in the end, things are not so, so uh, easy to, to discriminate between who's good and who's bad and who should be more morally uh, uh, judged. Uh, eventually, the, 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 uh, the experience or the feeling that this book gives is that the, uh, it's not, it's not um, at all um, moral relativism, but really the essential issue is not moral. Uh, the essential issue is all about happiness. How do you reach happiness? Illustrated by uh, Felix, who is uh, the, uh, the European uh, uh, brother. Uh, who comes with his sister Eugenia to the New World. And for him, uh, who's probably the most genial character in, in the book and who propels the, uh, uh, the energy of the book uh, onward, really uh, all those moral, bur- these moral issues are, uh, is just, are just a, bur- a, a burden uh, for characters to prevent them from enjoying life. So um, what I try to show is that with James, we come to, um, in, in, in the continuation of what happens in the Scarlet Letter, the issue is ontological. The issue is life. Uh, the, 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 uh, what, what is life about? What, what, what essentially uh, is it all about? And it's, the answer, uh, definitely in the Europeans, is it's not about morals. God is becoming, in that sense, uh, totally not the point. Yeah, and James seems less concerned with divinity than any other major 19th century American novelist that I can think of. 
Yes, probably. Uh, which, in the end, makes very complex. Well, uh, Europeans, the Europeans is not a complex novel at all, but we know that he's moved towards much more complex fiction, uh, which I understand precisely because he moved away from the warrant of meaning that the god of transcendence could be, then which you already sort of feel in the Europeans via the uh, the, the more complex figure, the the one complex character in this book. I would argue is is Eugenia, the uh, the European sister, where you sort of feel a kind of uh, prefiguration of the ulterior complexity of James's fiction, where if you take away the god of transcendence, the warrant of meaning, then you're left with reality, with a world, uh, and with a freedom to make sense of it, but also with a fear that you won't be able to make sense of it because it, it might not have any. Uh, final meaning. I think that leads pretty nicely into The Great Gatsby, which is the next book you look at. Definitely. By the time we get there, there's pretty much no possibility of transcendence whatsoever. No. Um, You say that the American self in this novel is torn between the poles of idealism and materialism, Mm. and that The Great Gatsby is one of the clearest attempts to describe the lived condition of such a self. What Mm. does life look like in the disenchanted world of that novel? Yes, this opposition between two poles I read in the opposition between the materialistic Buchanan's versus the idealistic Gatsby, of course. Uh, Of course, with the awareness that it's always Nick's, the narrator, and the one point of view we we have, Nick's romantic vision of of all this. But what the, the, the image of life that we have, I would say, I would have two adjectives. One is dichotomic, and the other is alienated. Dichotomic, because, uh, well, life is all about this opposition between, on the one hand, materialism, on the other hand, idealism, and alienated, because uh, this um, division, this cut uh, between the two poles uh, creates an, an, an essentially empty type of world uh, from which transcendence is, is banished. Um, the, the one proponent of idealism being Gatsby, the rest are all involved in the in the more materialistic uh, side of the society, um, and the, the two elements that I see as illustrative of this essentially empty and even alienated character, of this world from which transcendence has been dismissed, is of course the um, the, the chapter two where you have uh, the uh, the allusion to these eyes, the vacant eyes of the doctor of Dr. T.J. Eckelberg on this big poster overlooking the Valley of Ashes, kind of no man's land between the worlds of the rich, and also all those excesses uh, during Gatsby's parties, uh, which uh, the word, the, uh, the the main word might be uh, the order of the day seems to be uh, theatricality and fakery. So alienation would be my answer very much uh, as to the kind of life that is uh, created by uh, this utter dismissal of any kind of possible possibility of transcendence. And I mean, we've used the word idealism, but I mean, if you think about it, Gatsby's idealism is so impoverished. True. Like he, he's not imagining some sort of platonic realm of absolute beauty and truth. He's imagining... It's essentially a materialist idealism. He wants this this particular woman, and he and he thinks he can get her by by creating a world of immense material wealth around him. It's true, but at the same time, he's a believer 
in dream right <laughs> in dreams i um, probably plural would be best uh he he hasn't renounced it uh i i i don't see this this dimension of a dream in in the other characters except nick who who he's a kind of nostalgic romantic uh, has this nostalgia for romanticism i find but uh it's true that uh, that's that's also what I, I analyzed via the, uh, the the verbal mode that I found um, prevailing in the novel is this kind of hyperbolic prose where you feel that uh, the the narrative is striving towards heights of eloquence and and failing to adequately uh, come up with a language that would express uh, what used to be. Uh, transcendence and no longer is. So it's all a, a kind of the the, uh, the the book gives me this impression of of, of failed inflation. Uh, so Gatsby's idealism is also that. Mm-hmm. Because because the because the transcendent realm has been removed from the world, there's nowhere yeah. for all that stuff to go. Sure. So just I, I guess in the in the famous phrase at the end of the novel, it's it's beating back the boats. True. True. There's no possibility anymore for any kind of idealism if you take away the possibility, the, the, the remote possibility of transcendence under any form. So if, if The Great Gatsby is American literature at its most disenchanted, and I, I'm, that's probably an overstatement because I'm pretty sure we can both come up with 10 or 15 examples Certainly. of more disenchanted. But in terms Certainly. of the books you look at, yes. um, you begin the process of re-enchanting the world of American literature with your analysis of Steinbeck's The Grapes of Wrath. And you suggest right. that that novel presents a vision of a new kind of Christianity, one that's grounded in horizontal rather than vertical relationships and in lived experience rather than in doctrine. Mm, true. What makes it possible for Steinbeck to create a vision like that in this novel? Especially, I mean, it, you point out in the in the chapter, his other, his books before this are all pretty bleak. And mm. The Grapes of Wrath is sad in a lot of ways, but it's not a hopeless novel. No, not at all. Well, I find the the um, the reason that I find is I think it's basically propelled by a political project. Uh, initially, he had written articles about the um, the um, the issues that he's uh, turning into fiction uh, in uh, in um, the Grapes of Wrath. Uh, so um, he was. The, the, the feeling I had, he was uh, putting, uh, using fiction to propel, uh, to create uh, sympathy uh, in, in, in the heart of the reader that he couldn't probably be as efficient uh, in creating via journalism or, uh, or journalistic articles. So um, the reason being very much, I, f- I find what you, you can uh, uh, understand via Fry's modes, uh, the literary mode is more potent than the rhetoric. So um, he had to... Um, when I read this book, I, I was sensitive to its prophetic character um, based on on this uh, uh, spirit of what 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 is called in the book man self, uh, this kind of transcendence within within man that pushes him forward and through obstacles. And you you have of course the famous uh, allegorical this one passage of the of the turtle uh, that um, in in two pages uh, in this interchapter at the beginning of the book um, um, illustrates this uh, constant effort despite all obstacles. Uh, she, uh, it illustrates the, this, uh, the, the efforts of the Jodes uh, that, that 
advance no matter what. So the spirit, uh, this 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 immunized form of transcendence that propels the, the, the farmers forward is very much um, um, at the heart of the story. And also um, discuss the structure with this alternation, this, its alternation of narrative and interchapter, narrative chapters and interchapters, uh, creating, I find, uh, from a narrative viewpoint, sympathy uh, for uh, fictional characters that is then easy to be transferred to the uh, the general situation that you, you find described, the historical situation that you find described in the interchapters. So it's a it's a narrative structural device that that creates sympathy to uh, serve, I think, uh, uh, Steinbe Steinbeck's in basically political pr project, which is to, to move the readers to act and do something about the situation. But what, what's interesting to me about Grapes of Wrath is I, I know a lot of people who wouldn't share Steinbeck's political views at all who are still incredibly moved by that novel. That's it. That's it. That's the point. Uh, beyond uh, uh, political uh, partisan views uh, is to be sensitive, to become sensitive to a human situation in such a way that you, will, you might feel uh, propelled to act and do something about it. You, you suggest that the central myth of the Grapes of Wrath is the myth of resurrection, and that the purest expression of that myth is Tom's famous speech toward the end. Um, and you, you say that the speech, if I can quote you, uh, quote, reads as the culmination of a secular passion story, which is paradoxically, insistently non-teleological. Mm. I, I found myself wondering what a non-teleological passion story looks like. <laughs> <laughs> what I meant is that Tom is definitely a Christic figure by the end of the book. Uh, and yet the story, the mythos, as uh, Fry would say, is denies, uh, um, uh, ref refuses this understanding of history as oriented by divine justice. Uh, wrath is human wrath. The grapes of wrath is man's wrath. The wrath that builds uh, and will, inevit will lead one day to rebellion, uh, to um, overturning uh, the, the powers, uh, uh, the political powers that created the situation. Uh, so uh, it's, I know it's paradoxical, but in a way, uh, consistently, the novel shows that uh, the characters move, uh, but their, their travel is not theological in the sense that California to which they're going is no paradise. Uh, it's not the promised land. But despite that, by going there, by overcoming difficulties and being there overcoming the, the even worse difficulties maybe than what was left behind, the main characters, particularly Tom, but not only, achieve, I would say, a level of... Transformation uh, that make them nearly saintly figures, uh, which is, I find, the way that the novel um, fictionalizes a kind of immanentized Im Im form of transcendence, showing that transcendence is not uh, there above in a transcendent realm of some sort, but it's, it's, if it's to be found, uh, it will be found via man's actions and uh, capacity to sympathize with uh, his fellow beings. And in the end, 
we don't have a glorious episode of uh, salvation, of elevation of man towards some uh, divine uh, realm, but a very this very uh, touching uh, scene where um, the sister. Uh, Tom's sister gives her breast to uh, this uh, man dying of hunger, uh, so that in the end salvation is uh, is acquires this very physical human uh, dimension, stops being a kind of uh, ideal goal in the beyond. Not not something done once for all, but something that that has to be done repeatedly by many people. Quite. It'd be interesting to read *Grapes of Wrath* next to Camus. Because <laughs> right, the, the non-teleological passion, you know, what, what is Sisyphus if not a non-teleological passion? But true. but Steinbeck is doing something very different. He's he's clearly <laughs> holding out hope where Camus would not. True, true. That uh, I totally agree, <laughs> agree with that. Well, you find a similar passion in Kerouac's On the Road, except that Kerouac doesn't offer us even a secularized resurrection. No. And, and you talk about both of those books, Grapes of Wrath and On the Road, in terms of Bunyan's Pilgrim, Pilgrim's Progress, mm-hmm. and by extension, this larger Homer Viator tradition that eliminates a lot of medieval texts. Mm-hmm. How do those novels share in the Homo Viator tradition's mythos, and mm-hmm. can they offer us disenchanted moderns a return to a medieval conception of humanity i don't know about this return to a medieval conception of humanity but in any case what i observed in the two novels is that they are premised on travel as a quest for some kind of salvation uh, more political, probably economic in Graves of Wrath, more uh, essential, ontological in on the road. That, that's what I, I try to point out in the two cases. And on, on the Road is so interested in transcendence in the sense of transcending the materialism of the 1950s. True. But at the same time, it has this uh, hedonistic... Uh, the, 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 that's what I tried to show is that the, uh, the, 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 the impulse is, is, is very much uh, a spiritual but the means uh, the senses um, makes, it, uh, makes the quest doomed well it's not it's, it's, it's an idea that I, that I found in, uh, in, uh, in critics but uh, uh, it, it does make sense uh, you can't elevate. You can't. Uh, well, the senses have their limits, and the uh, the, the the pearl that Saul is is looking for uh, keeps escaping him because uh, it can't be found in the realm of uh, if if kept in the realm of the five senses. Yeah, it's it's a guy groping for transcendence who has no idea what it looks like or how to know True. when he finds it. True. It, and, you know, it makes me think, and, and it, I guess it should, of, of John Updike's Rabbit Run, which he wrote very consciously mm. in response mm. to On the Road. True, and there, true. There you, there you have what actually happens when people go out and try to uh, try to do it the way South Paradise does it. True, absolutely. One of the things I find most interesting about that chapter, the On the Road chapter, is the connection you make between South Paradise and Herman Melville's Bartleby. Mm. Uh, what, what do those guys have in common? Well, that's um, an idea that I uh, had when I when I read. I chanced upon really it was uh, uh, my luck on on, on, an, on an article uh, analyzing Melvin Melville's novella and uh, the character of Bartleby in, ter- in terms of his. Uh, it spoke of its uh, of his spiritual paralysis at the at the uh, paralysis. Sorry, at the end, uh, and 
and the way that uh, the, the, the connection I saw between the two characters is the way both, uh, because ultimately they are looking for the essential meaning of life, step out of the system, leave, are not willing to uh, work within the to, to, to accommodate, to agree with the materialistic daily logic of their, of their time, whether for in the one case it's utilitarian, in the other one it's another uh, context, but both step out of the frame for that. But the difference also, that's the common point, <laughs> the difference is that Sal moves on, even though uh, in the end he so, seems to be renouncing the trip, uh, he doesn't come to, to the level of nihilism that I think uh, Bartleby embodies. Although uh, Kerouac himself does, kind of. I mean, who does? Kerouac himself. Kerouac, well, Kerouac is the author. Yeah, That's a, a no, story. You're, you're right. You're right. I mean, it's autobiographical. Is that, is, is, yeah, we can't, we can't take Kerouac's end to be self paradises. But I think that, I mean, I think Kerouac, toward the end of his life, is kind of a Bartleby figure. He's just... Well, I agree with you. All, all, these, all these young people, and he, he just dismisses them all and drinks himself oh. to death. Oh, true. Definitely. He gave up. But uh, Sal is not yet. Well, it's the beginning of his career. He's still... Right. I mean, <laughs> Sal is not, has not totally... Uh, he stopped the... He seems to have come to a kind of more... Uh, uh, kind of realism, <laughs> kind of sort of wise uh, uh, settling down of sorts. But he, there's the nostalgia at the end of the book. He doesn't doesn't ring yet of, of the nihilistic despair that I find Bartleby uh, embodies. Right, I think that's right. Mm. Well, the last book you analyze is Morrison's Beloved, and you, you treat that as a full scale post secular return from materialism. Mm-hmm. Sure. Mor- Morrison's work certainly feels different than the work of the other novelists you discuss. And, and part of that, I'm sure, is that she's an African-American woman instead of a white man. And another part of it is that she's writing much later in the century. But even aside from those things, she seems much more comfortable with religion and certainly more comfortable with spirituality than any of the previous writers, um, even though she's not promoting any kind of orthodox doctrine. No. What is Morrison's attitude toward religion and spirituality, and how can she serve as a model for post-secular thinkers? Well, she's often quoted to say, or heard to say, that she was, she from 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 her young young age, she was used to having um, interaction with the other world. That it's part of African American culture. That it, it's no problem. Uh, so, um, in that sense, this familiarity with the otherworldly probably accounts for this feeling that her fiction gives that that she's at ease with the, what might belong to uh, what might be uh, called the, the spiritual world. Now, in the way that she could be a model for post-secular writers, I find, is the way her fiction both deconstructs and illuminates uh, the, some of the fundamental teachings of Christianity. What I've tried to show in another, uh, in an article, that uh, an, an essay that's online, that I entitled, I, I used... Um, a quote from um, Paradise, where, you, where, she, where the, the character says, one of the characters says, never break uh, uh, them in two, never put one other the other, 
Eve is Mary's mother. Mary is the daughter of Eve. And I uh, ended this quotation with um, uh, a phrase, T.M. Toni Morrison's Womanist Gospel of Self. My idea in this, in this essay is to explore the way I find all of her fiction is a, a, deconstru- a, a, a thorough way of deconstructing uh, the, the myth of the fall, uh, which means this uh, idea that, that man is essentially a fallen creature. Uh, deconstruct that that's the deconstructing part of it the reconstructing part of it being I find especially potent as from Beloved the the, the trilogy the way that um, uh, she, she comes to at the end of Beloved um, uh, Jazz and Paradise the, the, the three novels of the trilogy she comes to what I call the, a, a, a sort of gospel of self uh, I, I was qu- quite proud actually when I defended my, my PhD thesis on her fiction uh, Paradise had not been published yet and at the time so there was, there was Beloved and Jazz and I had concluded that uh, Beloved ended with, me, with, with the word me uh, Jazz ended with the word here and I said, in all likelihood, paradise will end with the word now. So, of course, when paradise was published, the first thing I jumped onto the book. <laughs> and the best good surprise of my life was that I had been right. So, <laughs> I kept, uh, um, I, I returned to my analysis quite Quite, quite happily, uh, to this idea that that she's constructing uh, through her fiction this kind, what I call the kind of gospel of self, back to basics kind of essential experience of meanness, me here now, a kind of uh, a cathartic, um, rejuvenated, I don't know how to <laughs> else to say it, regenerated sense of self, freed from the shackles of uh, a, a heavy Puritan ideology that, will, that would make uh, the human being into a, a fallen kind of creature. So that's the way I find that she uh, subverts uh, the uh, this ideology of the fallen uh, um, of the fallen human being, but at the at the other side, on the other hand, the other side of the spectrum, she reinvests uh, central teachings I find of Christianity. Uh, particularly the the teaching uh, of love, uh, and uh, particularly if you th- if you look at her latest books, particularly love and a mercy, uh, I have this feeling that they are that titles is a way of uh, expressing a kind of immanentized uh, form of. Uh, Chris, the, 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 let me rephrase this. These uh, the, the, these titles are like uh, immanentized expressions of those Christian virtues of love and and mercy. Mm-hmm. And particularly, it's obvious when you say a mercy. Uh, it's not mercy, God's mercy. It's a mercy, a human mercy. So that's the other pole of what I think she's trying to she's doing. I'm not it, trying. It's doing the, it's, it's, the tra- it's the transcendent expressed through the eminent. Wouldn't you say? Yeah, I would say so. And well, and and not even not only that, but a kind of reinvesting, um, giving life back to uh, Christian experiences, like that of mercy, or, or Christian teachings, or Christian virtues, like that of mercy, like that of love. Uh, 
that's still the pool. The, the first pool being a kind of uh, deconstruction of this uh, fallen um, construction of, of the human being. And as you as you mentioned at the beginning of the interview, transgression is such a big deal in, in Beloved, and, and it, it leads in some sense to a renewed spirituality. How, how does that work in the novel? In, 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 in Beloved, uh, well, transgression is, slavery is transgression. And she's fictionalizing this, showing uh, a series of transgression in response to the initial transgression of slavery. Uh, transgression in the very uh, etymological sense being uh, uh, going beyond the limit. Uh, they, they all go, go beyond limits. Sapphire leaves the plantation. Uh, um, then the, the, with the fugitive slave law, there's the slave catcher um, transgresses the boundary between the outside and her property. Uh, so she will transgress uh, the, the boundary between... Uh, what she's allowed to do uh, as a mother uh, between her body, her life, and that of her child, and she will decide to kill him, kill her. Uh, So it's all about transgression as a response to an initial transgression. And somehow cards have to be shuffled uh, to end that vicious circle and come to a renewed sense of, of... freedom of what may be done and what may not be done. That's this I, I borrow directly from, from, uh, from pages I read by, by Ricoeur. Uh, that, that was my idea. So a renewed spirituality, I don't know that I would use exactly that word, but in any case, a renewed sense of the way you should relate to the other in a human way, what it means to be human. And if you think about it, mercy itself is a kind of transgression because it's a violation of the rules. It, it, mercy says that one doesn't have to equal one. That that you know, turning the other cheek is a is a True. is a response. And and so I I, th- I think it's interesting that in in a world of transgression, there's all sorts of transgressions. True. Um, the, the way that I read uh, her novel specifically, A Mercy. Uh, was particular in, in in relationship to the, to the end of the book, where uh, the mother uh, um, e- explains. Well, we have the revelation of what the title is all about, uh, because throughout the book we wonder what mercy may might all be about, and and it comes the the, the answer comes in the last pages. Uh, it, it was a it was a mercy given by a human, not 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 divine mercy. And that's what prompted me to think that. Uh, uh, she is still very much, uh, Morrison, I mean, uh, into delving into what all those Christian concepts uh, that might have been put to not such good use <laughs> might actually mean when put into practice. The biggest question I was left with after reading your book is whether we should even think of such a thing as secular literature, whether literature is, because of its structure, because of the spiritual experience it gives you, that that it is by its very nature a re-enchanting of a disenchanted world. It should be, <laughs> but I'm, I know I'm, I'm teaching my students to try and discriminate between those works of literature that uh, do have that effect and those works of literature that do not. And I believe, especially uh, in, in those post, in our post, so-called postmodern times, you have a number of books that do not necessarily uh, are not written with a view to uh, uh, awakening a kind of... Uh, um, 
<laughs> spiritual understanding of reality, but more. Um, well, could, uh, could you give me an example of a book that's not? Well, those uh, those those authors that are really often labeled postmodern. I find uh, not, of course, not the Lilo. <laughs> he would be <laughs> the, of course, exception to the rule. For sure. Uh, but I think Barth too. John, I think John Barth is is spiritual in his way. Probably, probably. Uh, the way I've heard, uh, I think it's more probably a critical stance, really. But the way I've heard a number of books discussed, uh, uh, what is the last one, uh, latest one that I, um, oh, I right now the title escapes my mind, but um, the, it's, there's a kind of, the feeling I have is there's a kind of uh, um, consensus uh, in any case, in 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 the French circles that I, uh, that I uh, uh, that I know uh, of of my, my of colleagues who are specialists of American uh, literature, a kind of consensus to read postmodern literature as um, all about uh, arbitrary meaning, the arbitrariness of meaning, the constructedness of meaning. That's that's the uh, that's the default understanding understanding and and I, I was absolutely flabbergasted at, at a conference that I attended to hear Omega point or point Omega point Omega rather being discussed uh, with this uh, this very brilliant um, um, critic who argued that uh, that the title was not to be taken into account because the leader was not a believer and couldn't care less we are told to teach our students, first year students, that uh, titles are very much keys uh, into the meaning of a text. Now, point omega is, uh, is a concept borrowed from Pierre Teilhard de Chardin. And it Right. <laughs> and it's all about uh, this, this, this incredible theory of his uh, pertaining to the, the relationship between uh, the inner uh, and the outer. So I can't see how you can possibly uh, decide that a book uh, has a title that has nothing to do with what it's trying to say. So <laughs> Because DeLillo wouldn't sign off on... I'm sure. on Institutional I'm Catholicism. Sure. This can't be but, a spiritual. But still, <laughs> when you read it, uh, the, the the experience of consciousness that's that's uh, that's fictionalized is is incredible. Uh, and and I when I read the Phénomène Humain by by Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, where this 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 idea of omega point is or point omega is developed, uh, it made sense to me. The uh, Don DeLillo's book made sense to me uh, in in another way that I, it would have if I hadn't uh, had any awareness of Pierre Teilhard de Chardin's theory of this uh, interrelatedness between inner and outer. Uh, I, there's a way I, that you can read, I, I believe, uh, this this particular novel in terms of the, arbi, arbi, uh, the, the fluidity of meaning, the elus elusiveness of meaning, the uh, the the, the, the mean, well, kind of, of, of a meaning that is you, you, know, you can never grasp and so come to conclusion as to the, uh, I suppose the the the, la the, 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 the the lack of substance of meaning, the the illusory, uh, uh, the, the illusion that 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 the, the the idea that uh, uh, meaning exists can, can be. 
But when you put it in relationship with Pierre Teilhard de Chardin's mystic understanding of reality, then it, the, the book simply becomes something else. It becomes more of a, seems to me, a, a kind of a secularized version of a mystic experience of time and space. That's the way I read it in any case. Well, I like to end these interviews by asking our guests what project they're working on next. Do you, uh, do you already have another one lined oh, up? I have, I have a number of projects. Right now, uh, I managed to publish uh, a collection of, uh, a selection of essays uh, that were um, papers um, given at a conference that I co-organized back in 2011 in, in Nice, and it's taken me time because I was writing the Fry book at the same time. So uh, this uh, was a, a, a rather incredible conference, transdisciplinary conference on approaches uh, of uh, transdisciplinary approaches to literature and sciences and the sciences uh, to the spiritual um, dimension of, of arts and, and sciences and we had many people from various backgrounds uh, philosophers um, um, what you call physicists uh, literary critics uh, artists all kinds and so I've, I've managed to to to, have, to get the, these uh, the, 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 the papers published and, and a network has been created called Theorias in, in connection with this uh, experience, this, uh, this conference. So that's one direction that I'm taking. Uh, but as always, it's a marginal, I'm saying, as, uh, in my experience, it's a marginal thing because uh, it's, it's transdisciplinary, so I can't uh, really um, exist <laughs> as a as an academic uh, working on American literature because it's so transdisciplinary. But that's that's one project that I'm following, and I just uh, went to Quebec to uh, the uh, ACFAS conference, uh, where one of the uh, the panels was launched by this uh, network called Theorias, and we were exploring aspects of spiritual in the arts, particularly focusing on, on arts, but I, I, I spoke about uh, literature more. Um, now, the other side, but that's, I haven't started yet, but that's um, definitely uh, my project would be precisely to do what I've started uh, doing, what I started doing with you at the end of the interview, is to read uh, postmodern authors that are discussed, consistently discussed, in terms of um, deconstruction of meaning and arbitrariness of meaning and 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 sometimes paranoia and um, read those par so-called paranoid texts to to explore whether uh, there's in, there wouldn't be another side to the same coin the, the way a bit the way that I've been uh, um, very quickly discussing uh, point omega point omega that's very. In what, who are you going to look at besides Delilah? Well, Delilah will be a starting point because <laughs> he's written quite a few things. Also, um, uh, gosh, I, it's it's late. <laughs> sure, I'm losing sure. the name of the name of the author I'm thinking of. On the road, um, uh, the road. Sorry, not on the road. Cor oh, Cormac McCarthy. McCarthy. These are the two that I'm thinking of, but not only. Um, also, um, I'm, I, I like very much. Uh, this, not exactly the same thing, but I like a lot. Uh, first of all, what first of all ever does as an African American, it would be another page to my uh, uh, interest in African American literature. But 
he has also this way of interrogating meaning that I find interesting that uh, might be, uh, I don't know, but still, well, it's still a, a global intention yet that I'm just beginning to explore. Well, I hope when you finish that book, you'll come back on the show. <laughs> I don't know about whether it'll, it'll become a book. <laughs> it will first be a um, number of essays, first be classes, and then be a number of essays, and then we'll see. <laughs> It takes, a, it takes a long time to turn a thought into it a does. book, I know. It does. <laughs> Our guest for today on Christian Humanist Profiles has been Claude Lefistic. Her, her book, Northrop Fry in American Fiction, is out now from University of Toronto Press. We'll have a link to it at the show notes for this show at uh, christianhumanist.org. The Christian, uh, the Christian Humanist Profiles is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>